Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and coming to you from Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show, congestion pricing. No, seriously, congestion pricing. Somebody won a Nobel Prize for congestion pricing? They did. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And then buckle up, Brooklyn. Your boy Bernie's back. Everyone would like Bernie Sanders to be younger, especially Bernie Sanders. The, the crucial thing for people to understand is that there's, a, there's now a large swath of Americans, mostly young people, who want a democratic socialist candidate. And there isn't another candidate yet who's 35 years old and a natural-born U.S. citizen. The mayor and the governor have come out in favor of congestion pricing, and Long Island commuters are up in arms. Their plan would be to impose a toll on cars entering the Central Business District, which will be defined as all of Manhattan below 61st Street. Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio say this is necessary to provide a sustained funding stream to fix the MTA. But the Senate Majority Leader is opposed to the plan. To help us make sense of it all, we're joined by our all things New York City politics resident expert, Jarrett Murphy, publisher of City Limits. Jarrett, nice to see you. Thanks for having me. So tell me a little bit about this plan. First of all, it's remarkable that de Blasio and Cuomo are agreeing on anything. And actually, de Blasio, I think, remarked on that. Um, yes, it is remarkable. It's also something that they definitely disagreed on for the past 18 months, you know, when the subway crisis struck 2017. Cuomo instantly went to congestion pricing. De Blasio has been pushing this, let's tax the millionaires scheme, and been really resistant to congestion pricing for a long time. He's softened a little bit, and now he's come full circle. So on Amazon and now on this, they're best buddies. So what day. brought de Blasio around? Well, I think the recognition that the millionaires tax simply wasn't going to happen. You know, there's this concern in the state now about people who are wealthy leaving. They don't know if that's true or not. That's what Cuomo has said. Concern about the SALT deduction changes at the federal level, making it already tougher for rich people to live here. And, you know, we hope that they're going to be okay. Mm, it's, yeah, it's no, our, our, Let's our keep them in our hopes thoughts. and prayers. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that's part of it. But also I think he is conscious of the fact that, you know, the major obstacle to him getting things done in his first five years in office were Republican-controlled Senate and a governor who hated him and they hated each other. And the Senate has changed, and I think he's trying to change the second thing and finding ways where that can occur. So Bloomberg, about 10 years ago, proposed congestion pricing, and it didn't go great. What is different about this plan, and what has changed since then? The plan is slightly different, but I think more importantly, two things. The political context is totally different. When Bloomberg put that plan forward, there was no sense of crisis in the MTA. In fact, Bloomberg's pitch was largely around traffic being a big problem and air quality being a concern. And those were valid, but there wasn't a real sense of crisis around either of those. Now it's different. Now we know there is a huge problem with the transit system. Everyone feels it. So it's not really like congestion is a problem. It's like the MTA is a problem. We need to find a way to pay for it. Hey, let's revisit right. congestion. And wouldn't pricing. it be nice to fix congestion too? So the right. congestion is like the byproduct, the transit is the main focus of the policy. So let's talk about that congestion. Who drives in Manhattan? Foolish people. I think <laughs> is it all is it all commercial? Is it all like delivery? Who? No, no, there are I mean there are regular commuters who go to their jobs that way. Uh, people who go in and out for doctor's appointments and things. Uh, a lot of people go through Manhattan because of the oddity of the tolls on some bridges and not tolls on others. Some people find the cheapest path 
to go, say, from Brooklyn to New Jersey is to take a free bridge into Manhattan and then go across through a tunnel or something because you save a toll that way. So it can be a lot of different people. They are generally more wealthy than subway riders, um, but some people are relatively modest means. It's a relatively small number of commuters that do it every day, but it's a large number because everything in New York is large. Mm -hmm. So um, as you mentioned, currently some of the tunnels and bridges have tolls and some don't. So already most Jersey commuters who come into the city are paying to enter the central business district, right? Um, do we have a sense of like what percentage of people who come into Manhattan already are paying some type of toll? I suspect it's a substantial percentage, but not a majority. What's interesting is I believe the plan that has been written, and again, this is not the plan that's been passed because nothing's been passed yet, would credit people who pay that toll. Uh, they would not have to pay an additional toll. So in other words, if you pay five bucks to come over a bridge, and the congestion charge is five bucks, then you're all set. They're not going to charge you twice. Oh, I see. And so have they um, discussed yet how this toll is going to be implemented exactly, or is that all going to be discovered later? So as you mentioned, it's the Central Business District, or CBD, as I think we'll begin calling it. Uh -huh. That's what the cool kids will say, below 61st Street in Manhattan. doesn't include the FDR Drive. How does the hemp community feel about this acronym? <laughs> I'm not sure. I think this sure. is going to be confusing. They're On hungry. our show, we talk a lot about CBD, and people won't know. <laughs> What we're talking no wonder, about. Yeah, yeah. No, we're worried about that. Um, and I think it's going to be all about, you know, Cuomo's all about the cashless tolling. We've seen that imposed on an increasing number of roadways in the city and the state. And so this will be cashless tolling. So not booths. It'll be a perimeter you'll go through. You won't notice it except on your credit card statement. So um, are there any exemptions to this plan? They're talking about exemptions for obviously emergency vehicles, which makes sense, and people who have a disability or some significant hardship. That's how the mayor and governor phrased it in their 10-point plan. Now, that's not been defined. I have a feeling a lot of devils will be in those details, um, but I imagine it would be people who um, have a disability or need to drive their parents somewhere. And I think there'd be a question about whether one gets sort of a, a occasional exemption versus like a permanent one but all that will have to be worked out. So I can sort of see three different groups who might have issues with this. Uh, commuters, commercial vehicles, delivery vehicles, um, and also taxis and rideshare companies. So maybe let's start with the last one. Lyft and Uber are actually in favor of congestion pricing. Is that right? I think so. Well, partly because there's already a system going into place, um, I believe, affecting those cars. That was put into uh, into law even earlier. And I think they're fighting that currently. I th yeah, there is a lawsuit yeah. that, that, that. It will affect all those groups. I think that the case that we made to them is that it might make their lives easier in the sense of getting other traffic off the roads. I mean, that, that'll be the, the grand bargain is if you drive a commercial vehicle, you have to pay some extra money to get in, but you're going to do it you know, 20 minutes faster. Maybe that's worth it to you in terms of paying for people and paying for gas and all that stuff. That will be the, I think that will be the argument of pro-congestion pricing people, whether it materializes or not, depends on how the implementation goes. And they'll also try to divert delivery vehicles to off-peak hours, right? Mm -hmm. Because it'll it'll depend on the time that you enter the. Right, variable system. pricing is a big part of this, and that's really what makes the congestion pricing mm -hmm. scheme. You know, otherwise it's just a toll. But if you move it according to time of day and maybe even vary it according to volume of traffic, which they haven't exactly talked about, then you can try to get people who can switch their time of delivery to the non-peak hours to come in then. And then that has a lot of benefits. You know, it means um, the roads are being used more efficiently all the time. That's the theory behind congestion pricing that William Vickers won the Nobel Prize for like 25 years ago, the idea that you could price it exactly according to when demand is highest and lowest. Somebody won a Nobel Prize for congestion pricing? They did. Wow. Yeah.
Okay. Um, so the plan is already facing some opposition. Um, Andrea Stewart-Cousins, she's the new Senate Majority Leader, says that this plan disproportionately impacts Long Islanders, um, and we'll need to see some changes made before she and the representatives from Long Island can support this. Is that right? She has a job of keeping the Senate majority together, these 40 Democrats elected, but representing a lot of different places and a lot of different ideologies. I think she's responding to some complaints from the Long Island contingent about the fact that their people who drive into the city would be affected by the toll, but wouldn't benefit from the congestion pricing money going into the MTA to improve transit. Todd Kaminsky, who's kind of the leader of the Long Island um, caucus, if you will, it's not officially called that, within the Democratic uh, majority, has said that he wants some of the money set aside for the LIRR. Um, that's going to be a problem because already the math is not especially favorable. I mean, congestion pricing will help a lot, but it's not going to like solve the MTA's subway repair woes. And I think what advocates would say is, look, almost everyone who rides the LIRR ends up on a subway train at some point. So they have a built-in reason to support the subway improvements. LIRR doesn't have anywhere near the service and maintenance issues that the subways do. So I don't know if that argument's going to really prevail. I suspect there'll have to be some nod made because people want to maintain democratic uh, unity. But I don't know if it's going to be a major stumbling block. So how much is this going to help? How much money will this raise to help fix the MTA? Well, the estimates have been all over the map. Um, it's several billion dollars. But I think what's interesting about the mayor and governor's plan is that they explicitly say, we also want to throw in a portion of internet sales tax money, this new tax they're going to impose, and some money on uh, legalized marijuana, some percentage of the tax revenue from that. That's an indication that already they understand that this money from congestion pricing is not going to be enough to fix the problems the NPA has right now. And then at some point, once those problems are solved, which won't be in our lifetimes, presumably, um, continue to you know do the regular maintenance and fund the improvements that the system is supposed to have. What's interesting about that is the marijuana tax money has already been controversial in terms of where that's supposed to go. Does it go to fix transit? Does it go to do something else? Does it go to help communities that were primarily affected by onerous marijuana enforcement? Right. So that, there's a little fight in there that could get very interesting. Everyone wants a piece of the weed money. Absolutely. Um, if this doesn't pass, is there a viable plan B to fix the MTA, or is everybody putting their eggs in this basket now? This is it. I mean, it really is. I think if this doesn't pass, it's going to be very, very difficult to um, gather the public political will or the ideas to find something else. It's not going to be enough to fix the problem, but I don't think the problem can be fixed without it. I think that's just simple math. Mm -hmm. um, now, one thing that you've written about and that has been suggested as a potential way to fill the coffers is parking. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the thinking around how we might want to start having people pay for parking in New York. Well, so it's interesting we're talking about charging people for driving, but mm -hmm. not for parking, right? Parking gives you basically, in much of the city, like 97% of the spaces, it's free. That's a and crazy it, statistic to me. I didn't realize that it was 97%. It's something like that. In most neighborhoods, there is at least anecdotal evidence that it's getting harder to park. So I think people are talking about pricing parking in a way that makes parking more efficient. I don't know if it would generate that much money for the transit system, but I think there is a sense in which all of this works together, right? Transit depends on buses to a great degree. In much of the city that is poorly served by subways, buses are the way to go. 
buses are how you're going to sell people on congestion pricing. But buses can't move if folks are double parking because there's no place to park on a commercial strip. And that might be because parking is priced so low, folks can hang out there for several hours when they don't need to. It's very, very sticky. We posted a story on it, and the comments we got were very negative and very personal. Like, how dare you take our parking away? Right. So I think it's not this something is America. folks— This is America, damn it. Um, I think folks are going to be very trepidatious about stepping into that after congestion pricing. But— Almost certainly it's the way it's going to go. New York City is not getting physically larger. Our population is growing, and our car-owning population is also growing. And um, I'm not a mathematician, but that suggests that at some point that's going to be very, very difficult to manage. Something that I read, I think, in an op-ed in the New York Times about um, permitting parking, about paying for residential permits to park your car, was that it might also be able to do away with alternate side street parking, and that you might be able to put some of this revenue back into developing some type of sweet cleaning street cleaning system that didn't involve moving cars. Did you read this? I didn't read that, but it's interesting you mentioned that because there is actually a press conference happening this week. Several city council members saying they want uh, permit parking on the Upper West Side. So there are some neighborhoods that want that. A lot of cities have it. It gets tricky in New York with how you define different neighborhoods. Um, there's always issues of privilege involved. But this ties back into congestion pricing. One of the fears about congestion pricing is because you are setting up these barriers that folks might drive to areas just outside the zone or reasonably outside the zone and start parking there. That was a big worry during the Bloomberg debate about congestion pricing. Whether it's viable now or not, whether those neighborhoods have any free parking spaces, I don't know. But there is a sense that if you are charging for parking for driving in an area, the areas just outside it will become much, much more difficult to park in. Sure. I'm, I'm sure that people who live on 62nd Street are a little nervous. Yeah, I'm sure they're thrilled. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, Jarrett, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you. Brooklyn, because by the time you hear this, you will have spent a weekend at Bernie's. That's right, America's favorite socialist grandpa visits Brooklyn College on March 2nd. And here to tell us more about his past, present, and future is 112BK resident pundit Nick Rizzo. Nick, welcome back. So great to be here, Mackenzie. Thanks for having me. So you were a big Bernie supporter in 2016, correct? I was indeed. And what about now? So I'm not all the way there with Bernie yet because, you know, effectively we were shopping in an ice cream store with two flavors, and now we're in an ice cream store with, like, 30. But... I'm leaning towards him, I'd say. Okay. I mean, he certainly has uh, issue positions that I, I don't see the other candidates replicating yet that are, are close to mine. But, you know, I think every single candidate in this race does have flaws, and the flaws are obvious. Sure. We're all human. Quite. Um, what are some of the other non-Bernie flavors that you are sampling? Candidates uh, from outside the Northeast, I'm— Interested in both of the Texans who are running, Beto O'Rourke and Julian Castro. Um, so someone from like the Midwest or the West would be interesting, like Sherrod Brown or Amy Klobuchar or Kamala Harris. Elizabeth Warren, I thought, has been delivering a very muscular progressive message lately that I, th I think is interesting. I think you'd be foolish to count out Kirsten Gillibrand. She's uh, a really smart operator. Cory Booker has been working the early states really intensely. Joe Biden might jump into the race, and, and I'm leaving, you know, five other good candidates out, including 
the millennial mayor of South Bend, Indiana, Pete Buttigieg. That's right, who also visited Brooklyn somewhat recently. Yeah, yeah. I missed that one, but I'm, I'm definitely going to try to to learn more about him at some point. Yeah, There's people a lot I seem like to like him. that guy. My theory is, for me, the most important thing is, is a presidential nominee who recognizes that times are really different, that we can't keep doing the same old, same old when, like, the world is on power and, like, nationalists are in power across the world. Right. So, I mean, this is going to be a very different election from four years ago. Yeah. Um, what does Bernie need to do differently? I think Bernie needs to reach out to non-white voters more. I'm not sure he actually needs to broaden his coalition necessarily more than he has just because, you know, if he can hold on to most of his voters and sort of, let's say, Hillary's voters split among a number of candidates, that's the nomination for him right there. I've had a lot of people who supported Hillary last time suggest to me that they'd be open to supporting Bernie this time. There are also people who are very insistent that we not nominate Bernie, though I hear that about almost every nominee already. Sure, sure. So you mentioned sort of the um, overshadowing of non-white, straight, cis men who support Bernie by this Bernie bro phenomenon. Right. Um, would you have any advice to Bernie bros about how to behave this time around so as not to damage their candidate? Yeah, actually, uh, without getting into it too much, I'm a pretty left-wing person, but I I've, I've, I've was really getting into it over the last couple of weeks with a, the supporters of a candidate even more left-wing than mine. And it got incredibly vituperative online from these anonymous accounts who don't live in, by and large, don't live in New York and I'm never going to meet. And it's it's scary. I think people who are newer to politics often behave quite harshly. It can be hard to understand that your enemy in the primary is normally your ally in the general election. So I understand that often calls for civility or bipartisanship are a mask to let the unjust doings of the status quo continue. But I really do think that uh, we've lost a lot of civility and listening in our country uh, in the last few years, and I think we all need to work to, to try to bring back some of it, and that includes Bernie Sanders supporters. And I think that point you made that your enemy in the primaries is actually the person you will probably be supporting in the general right. is one of the main um, complaints about Bernie and his supporters is that there was a lot of misogyny around Hillary and that maybe Bernie didn't do enough to bring his flock to to her during so the general election. My take on that, that is like, let's look at like the Democratic Convention of 2016. I think... Uh, there was a lot that was strategically stupid or inappropriate about some of the Bernie delegates making making a scene at the convention. But at the same time, this notion of the Bernie bro who abandoned Hillary in droves in the 2016 general election is mostly not true. Of course, there were Bernie Sanders supporters who didn't vote or didn't vote for Hillary. But that percentage is less than half the percentage of Hillary Clinton supporters in 2008 who didn't vote for Barack Obama in the general election. So maintaining the support of everyone from the primary into the general has been a challenge no matter who your candidate is, whether they're from the left faction of the party or the more centrist faction of the party. So what do you think about Bernie tossing his hat in the ring for president again? Some people are saying, you know, Bernie, we love that you've moved the party to the left. It would be great to have you in a more advisory capacity to, you know, throw your support behind maybe a younger person of color, a woman. Um, what do you say to that? Yeah, well, I don't think there's an obvious candidate is the problem. I think everyone would like Bernie Sanders to be younger, especially Bernie Sanders. The, the crucial thing for people to understand is that there's, a, there's now a large swath of Americans, mostly young people, 
who want a democratic socialist candidate. And there isn't another candidate yet who's 35 years old and a natural born US citizen who's, who's willing to take on that mantle. The question for me is, does his, to my mind, perhaps better perspective beat out the negatives that will come from, from being quite aged? And I don't know. To me, he sounds like an ideal vice presidential candidate. Yeah, I mean, the most important thing when you're selecting vice president, too often I think it becomes a little bit of a political decision. Or, I mean, it should be a, a political decision. But the most important thing is to remember that you're trying to select a person who's, if they become the president, they're becoming a president during a crisis. And so you need someone who's able to, to take the reins. I'm not saying Bernie couldn't do that, but... Too often we select for balance, I think, and not for who's the right person for the job. But I really do believe already it's clear with uh, the possible Democratic nominees, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. The more that we work together, the stronger we are. So you yourself are a Democratic Socialist. I am. Um, How do we think Democratic Socialism plays nationwide? I think that we have gone from it not being a term that many people have even heard of to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, of course, uh, Bernie Sanders. Do we think that people are still as scared of the word socialism as they used to be, or are people willing to embrace it? I mean, there's no question that they're not as scared as they used to be, right? I mean, we never saw any mainstream American politicians like this for the last 90 years espousing these positions. So the fact that they're able to get out there and thrive at all shows that something's shifting. Or maybe they were espousing similar positions, but not under the mantle of socialism. What I've also seen a number of times in the last year or two is that most people don't care. Most people want help with their problems. And nowadays, they're willing to pragmatically take whatever form that that comes in, whether that's capitalism or socialism. We've seen a number of attacks. Look, the Republicans definitely think that attacking Democrats for being socialists is is the best play they've got. They're spending a lot of time trying to pin as much as they can on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And every day that they do that, it makes her stronger and more popular. They attack Bernie for this, and he appears to be the most popular politician in America. So the tag does not really seem to be sticking anymore is my belief. I'm sure there's some parts of the country where it's a problem, but so far I'm, I've been shocked by how little I've encountered it being a problem. I mean, I do think it is a generational thing because yeah. you and I are of a generation where, you know, the Cold War was ending when right. we were kids and, you know, the specter of communism and the Soviets coming really hasn't been an issue in our lifetime. Although, you know, the Russians coming to control our government is a different thing. Yeah, they're but not, they're not communists They're not communists, anymore. yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I absolutely, the way I define millennials is if you're too young to remember mourning in America, the 1984 Reagan re-election where Reagan creams Walter Mondale, wins 49 states. So if you're born after 1981, maybe, 1982, you definitely don't remember that, but old enough to remember 9-11. If, you, if, if, if that describes you, you're a millennial. But it, if you don't have much experience of the Cold War, if you don't have much experience of yeah, that kind of bifurcation in American culture between, you know, the free world and the commies. So let's bring things back to the local a little bit. Um, by the time this airs, Bernie will have visited Brooklyn. Yeah, I'm uh, really looking forward to have had seen it. <laughs> Are you going? I am going. Um, why is he kicking things off here aside from the fact that, you know, of course, he's a hometown boy? Can yeah. You do a, can you do a Bernie impression, by the way? Millionaires and billionaires are taking what we need from our culture and giving it all to buy yachts. 
It's unacceptable. I'm gonna go play some stickball. That that real like plosive of yachts. Plosive yeah, yachts. Yeah. That's right. I mean, That's you know, great. how much are we doing the Larry David, and how much are we doing the? Well, this will be a quiz. Yeah. Uh, next time we have you but, on. Yeah. Nick. So yeah. I think part of it is the. I think we are a cultural center of America, certainly, and we're a big group of people. More people live in Brooklyn than any other county in the East Coast. But yes, yeah, so I think it's a bunch of things. But I think it's. I think it's definitely. Uh, traditionally, you sort of return to your roots uh, for a kickoff or for a headquarters. So, for instance, Kirsten Gillibrand is from upstate New York. Her campaign headquarters is in Troy. A lot of the times you go back to your sort of like maybe your high school to make your announcement. Bernie started at Brooklyn College before transferring to the University of Chicago. I guess this is his way of, uh, of, of going national. I think last time he announced in Vermont. But he certainly was not as big a deal the last time he yeah. asked for president. Um, well, Nick Rizzo, thank you so much for coming on the show. Always great to be here, Mackenzie. Thanks. And that is the show for today. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next time to talk about a book about the first six black millionaires in America. Hope you can join us. One Win 2BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 